Well, one of the other ways that Christians make a difference in the world is what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at this idea of suffering that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. You know, back in Greek and Roman times and ancient times in that first century, what really undid the Romans and the Greeks were how the Christians suffered. Isn't that crazy? I mean, when they were crucified, when they were impaled on stakes, when they were stakes, when they were fed to lions, Christians would sing hymns and praise God, and the people watching were just undone by that. It's like, what is going on with these people that that's their reaction to this? And they marveled at how Christians suffered, and it made a difference. And Paul's talking to us this morning about that topic of suffering and how, as Christians, we can endure suffering and we don't have to buy into the ideas that have been put forth in our culture from long ago and are still being put forth today. You know, the old Eastern thought that Gautama Buddha was trying to find the answer to is, why is there suffering in the world? And he said, well, if you were truly enlightened, what he found out, that you would find out that suffering is just an illusion. It's just an illusion, as life is. If you would get to the point that he had gotten to, you would find out that suffering really doesn't exist. Neither does your life really exist. That was his answer to finding why suffering, to treat it like it's nothing. The second one is that kind of an Eastern, again, kind of flows out of Hinduism, something older, this karmic tradition. This, you've heard of karma, right? What goes around comes around. Karma is something that says, well, the reason you're suffering is because of a life you lived before. The things that are going bad in your life right now are a sign that you've lived a life worse before. And so you're paying for that debt now. Karma is a horrible master because it says you deserve. All suffering is just just. You deserve it. And the third one is a little bit more modern. It's this stoic view of, of suffering. It, it cropped up in the Roman days where suffering was something to be worn as a badge of honor. It was something that you endured the pain, something that you looked forward to because if you could endure the suffering, if you could endure the pain without whining, without complaining, because suffering is just a part of life, then you would be better for it. It's something to welcome into your life. But Christianity turns all of those upside down. While there might be some truth in all of those, not one has the truth. Not together do they have the truth. And that's what Paul's going to talk to us about this morning, about suffering, about why we suffer. How do we hold up underneath suffering? What's a Christian's response to suffering in this world? And to do that, we're going to look at Romans 8, like I said before, starting in verse 18, going through verse 39. But before we get there, I'd ask if you would pray with me as we prepare. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this body of believers. Father, I thank you for their generous hearts, the hearts that you are continually recreating within us, molding and shaping more into the image of your Son. Father, I humbly pray this morning that you would continue that work in this time through your word, that I pray that my words would be your words, that, that my thoughts would be your thoughts, that you would take every thought captive and, and hold them in your hand, molding and shaping them more into the image of your Son. 
Father, we ask you now by the power of your spirit to help us look, live, and love more like your son as we come to understand what it means to live in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm using the NIV version this morning, or I'm sorry, the ESV version this morning as we read through Romans 8, 18 to 39. And I'm, I've broken it up into three different sections. If you have your sermon notes card, you'll see there are three points to the outline. And what we'll see here this morning that Paul is telling us is, what is the Christian view of suffering? What does that look like? We'll see that in verses 18 through, what did I say, 26, 25? And then, 25, thank you. And then we'll see how God helps us in the midst of suffering from, chap, from verses 26 to 30. And then those remaining verses, 31 to 39, we'll see what does that mean for us? How do we apply this into our life? How does this knowledge, how does this help us in the midst of our suffering? That's how I've divided it, and that's how we'll approach it this morning. So as we begin, I'd like to start reading in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For one who hopes what he sees, for who hopes for what he has, sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And in these verses, Paul turns all of those views I talked about earlier upside down. First of all, he says, suffering is not an illusion. It's real. He says, in comparison to the glory that God has created for us and that he is working on, it's nothing in comparison. But he doesn't say suffering is nothing. What God has prepared for us is greater than anything we could imagine. But the suffering that we experience now is real. And not only do we experience it, the entirety of creation is experiencing it. The entirety of creation is groaning. And that word groaning there means someone who is in deep distress, someone who is great concern, someone who is about to die. That's the groan that we see creation giving off. That's the groan that it says we, along with creation, are groaning. That suffering is real. It exists. And we also see that it's not always just, is it? Because what did creation do to deserve suffering? He reminds us back in the beginning, the reason, as Paul told us earlier in Romans, and we see from the very beginning, the reason that creation is subject to decay is because of man. Because what man has done, because of the transgression of man, sin entered the world, and then through sin, death, as Paul tells us in Romans 5. We have caused this creation to be subject to decay. And who subjected it? But God. God did that to creation on account of us. 
So suffering is not always just. Sometimes we suffer not because of things that we've done, but because we live in this sinful, fallen, broken, decaying world that bad things happen. So suffering is not always just. Karma doesn't always speak here. In fact, I would say karma doesn't speak at all in God's creation. And then finally, to the Stoics, we see man groaning. We see the spirit groaning later. We see the creation groaning. Those deep, distressing words, feelings, utterances from within us. Read the Psalms. Read Lamentations. The book we never preach from, but read it. It's nothing but man crying out to God over why and how agonizing it is that we would have to endure this. But we see man crying out, not welcoming suffering. While the glory to be revealed is greater, the suffering we endure right now is real and it's painful and it hurts. We were never created to die. And so when we do, when others that we care for do, it hurts and it changes us. And we're never the same. That lie that time can heal all wounds is exactly that. It's a lie. And we groan and we can cry in our pain and our sorrow. We don't have to hold up with a stiff upper lip and and take it. The Christian view of suffering releases us from these other lies and ways of trying to deal with suffering that only end up with more suffering when we treat it as though it's nothing or we treat it as though it's just karma. Well, I guess I just deserved it. Or you deserved it because I've seen how you live. Or that we have to just endure it and we should welcome it and we shouldn't cry and we shouldn't be human. The Christian view of suffering says, no, that's not true. Suffering is real. That sometimes it is unjust. But also, we can cry out to God. And the way he tells us that we can endure this, one of the ways that we can endure this is by keeping our eyes fixed forward on what God is about to do. You know, this idea that we read that says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for us, for Jesus to come back and to reveal the sons of God, those written in the book of life. Because at that time, there'll be a new creation. Everything will be restored. We will have new bodies. And it says all of creation is eagerly waiting. And that picture that we get here from these words is this, is that Glory is greater than suffering. That the glory that's coming is much greater than the suffering that we're currently enduring. And the way we live is this eager expectation up on our toes with our necks outstretched, just wanting to get a glimpse of what God has in store because of how magnificent it is. It's in the midst of suffering that we can sort of raise ourselves up to sort of just get up peak and we wait eagerly because what we're enduring right now is painful and it hurts but 
we're told here that there's something even greater coming. How many times can you go through mindless post after post after post on Facebook just to get to that one cute kitty video? Knowing that that's out there somewhere, you can endure all those other mindless posts. Not saying I do that, I'm just saying that's what I've heard. I mean, how many baseball games can you sit through to wait on a World Series? Apparently a lot, but when you do, it's glorious, is it not? Because of the hope of a World Series. You can endure season after season after hundreds of seasons to, to endure, right? You can do that. Amen, that's right. And, and some people, are, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying you can endure this if you keep your mind focused on what God has coming. You can endure this. Not that it's not painful. Not that it's not real. Not that it's always just. Not that you have to have a stiff upper lip and act like it's nothing. No, it's something, but there's something even greater coming. Paul says it this way in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. We see in the midst of all this that he is still our father because we're called the sons of God. We're called heirs earlier, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God has not changed as a result of our suffering. And he is truly the good, good father. And not only are we in relationship with him, not only does he work in the future, is he working now preparing this place for us, but he's working right now in the midst of suffering. God helps us now, right now. Paul goes on in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's you and I. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, no exception, all things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is working in the midst of your suffering. It says the Spirit is interceding for you in the midst of your suffering. He's not just sitting there weeping with you. He's interceding. He's working for you and praying with you, and praying for you in ways that you don't even know what you need. But the Spirit knows the will of God. The Spirit knows the heart of God, the mind of God. And so the Spirit that we have leading us, as Dan talked about last week, that guides us into the ways of God, here not only comes alongside to comfort us in the midst of our suffering. The deist says God has wound the clock and sat back and watched everything unfold. But Paul's saying, no, that's not true. God is right with you in the midst of your suffering, and his spirit that he put in you is not just 
a marker marking you, a deposit saying you are his, but he cares about you. And he's put his spirit in you to walk alongside you, to comfort you, to cry out and to pray for you, to intercede on your behalf in accordance with the will of God. And then he tells us, I think, one of the most glorious things in all of Scripture, especially for those who are going through suffering, is that in all things, it says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This literal translation says, we know that those living, those loving God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. God is working in all things. You know, some of the greatest suffering that Christians do that's caused by in Christians is the surprise at the suffering that they have to endure. You know, it's the thought that since I'm a Christian, there are some things God would not allow me to endure, that God would not allow to happen to me, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying in all things. We live in the same fallen, broken world as everyone else. All things can befall us. We should not be surprised. The worldview says that things are normal when things go right. That's what we've believed in. That's why we suffer this surprise. We think that everything is right when things are normal. And things are normal when things are right for us. But when things go wrong, what do we do? Who can I sue? Who can I blame for when things go wrong? Because things shouldn't go wrong. Things should go right. But that's not what Paul's saying. He said, no, everything is going wrong. We live in a world that's decaying. Everything is decaying. I mean, just look at yourselves. All right, even the best looking among us at some point in their life will put on cosmetics and loose-fitting clothes to hide the fact that we're decaying. Right? It will not reverse it, although millions of dollars are being spent to try and do that. It cannot do that. Because everything is decaying. And if you get what Paul is saying, he's saying a Christian looks at everything, and when things go good, we look for God to praise because everything is decaying. So when things go good as Christians, we should praise God for the things that go good because God is the one that's the author of all things that are going good. That's the difference. The secular world says, when things go wrong, we look for someone to blame. And the Christian says, when things go right, we look for God and we praise him. And what Paul's saying to us also is that he's not taking bad things and making bad things good. He's saying, no, he can bring good things out of bad. He doesn't treat bad things as nothing, as insignificant, as just illusion. Remember when Jesus approaches Lazarus' tomb, and he's told that Lazarus dies. What does Jesus do? Do you remember? He cries, right? He weeps. And it says that he's angry. He doesn't come to Lazarus' tomb and to Mary and Martha and say, hey, don't worry about it. This is really a good thing that he died. You know, because you're going to get to see something spectacular. So and really, you shouldn't be crying at all. No, Jesus himself cries. And he weeps and he's angry because we were not meant to die. And death is painful and it hurts when you lose someone close to you. And he doesn't treat it as insignificant. 
or inconsequential, it means something. But in that, even in that, in the worst of things, it says God is working for good. In all things, God is working for good for those who are called according to his purpose, who love God. He's working in all things. And he can bring good from bad. Now, it's not this. I've heard this. It's like, well, you know, this kind of thought. I, 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 I broke my ankle and I couldn't play in the big game. But while I was rehabbing my ankle, I met this cute girl and we fell in love and we got married. So God brought good out of bad and that might be true, but that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is in the end, when God comes again, we will see that all things from the beginning of time to then, God has been working good out of the bad for all those who love him. And we'll see that. That from the beginning of time, and he says, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I want, I want you to understand the order here because we get confused on this idea of predestination and what God does and what free will is and what, we, what role we have in all this. But you understand what he says first, those whom God foreknew. Why is it that God foreknows who's going to believe in him? Who will not reject? Because God is all-knowing. We're told in the scriptures that he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, he knows everything. God exists outside of time. God created time. When he created this world, time began, but he's existed before that and will exist after that. And in his omniscience, God knows before time began who will believe in him, who will not reject. That's on us. But those that will heed his call because he calls all men. And it's the same effective call for everyone. But some won't. But those who will, it says God has been working from before time began and has an idea of how he will bring about good even in this fallen, sinful, broken world for all those who love him. We have a loving father who helps us, who doesn't sit back with his hands off and say, well, you deal with it. No, he gets involved with his spirit living in you, and he works everything in your life, everything for good for you and for all who would believe. And we'll get a glimpse of that at the end. So then, what do we make of all this? What are we to make of this? That's what Paul says next. He says, what then shall we say of these things? What does this mean for you and I? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for, you are, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What does it mean for you and I? It means that in the midst of our suffering, it should not be considered that God has forsaken you. It does not change your relationship. As you see someone suffering, you can take heart that it's not a result that God has forsaken you, that God is judging you, that God is condemning you. For he says, who shall judge you? Who shall judge God's elect? God has justified you. Who will condemn you? Because Christ was condemned. He was the one that was crucified, but he lives. It is not God's judgment on you. It is not God condemning you because of your sin. He did that in in his son. It does not change your relationship with him. So in the midst of suffering, you can take heart and know that it's not God condemning you, that the reason that we're suffering unjustly or suffering at all is because we live in this fallen, sinful, broken world. And we are more than conquerors. We are more. We are heirs. We are sons of God. And he is working tirelessly for us in ways that we have never even recognized. In all circumstances, in sickness, in death, in trials, in tribulations, in persecutions, in famine, in nakedness, in distress, God is right there with you. And we see that in the midst of suffering, there's something more glorious coming. We can see in the midst of suffering that God himself is working with you, that his spirit is interceding on behalf of you, and we see Jesus Christ interceding for us also. But I believe to truly understand all of this, we need the really proper perspective to really bring all of this together so that we can make it personal for me. And that proper perspective Paul gives us earlier in verse 17 where it says that Jesus Christ shared in our suffering so that we could share in his glory. Christ enters this world, this fallen, broken, decaying world, and suffers on our behalf so we can enter his glory. We see Jesus suffering. But then in verse 26 and 27, we see something else. We see the Spirit groaning. The Spirit groans on our behalf. Remember what that groaning word means, someone in great distress, someone who's deeply concerned over this death and decay. For us, we just see the Spirit suffering with us in those verses. And some will say, well, how can the Spirit know how to suffer? It doesn't make sense. But we see on the cross, Jesus crying out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. But the rest of that verse goes like this. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And so we see that we know that God the Spirit knows what it is to suffer. But we also see in these last verses, God the Father suffering with us as well. Because it says he sent his one son, his only son. He did not spare his only son. What good father would not suffer 
seeing his son in agony and beaten and crucified like that. We know that we have a Father, a God who is greater than all things. But he's not so great that he doesn't suffer with us. God himself suffered and suffers with you and I. He's not some distant God who doesn't understand. But he suffers with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we look to the future. Secular world says there is no future. We just need to take stock in what we have and sit here in the midst of this, and we need to take as much pleasure as we can here because there's nothing coming. And the Christian view says, no, we know that this world is decaying, but there's something much greater coming. And we have a God who is working in this situation for our good and for all the good of those who love him. And he has something much better coming. And in the midst of this, he's saying, as Christians, we can sit in the midst of our suffering with hope because of what God has done and what God is doing and God, what God will do. And he's saying, think, that's what Paul's saying, think about it for a minute. Jesus Christ came and he died your death and this criminal's death on the cross and he was laid in that tomb and he was raised again to new life, which means you will be raised again to new life. And if that's true, and for all you that believe in him, that means that if that's true, then the God of the universe is your father. And he is working all things for good for you. And the good things that you have can never be taken away and the best is yet to come. But I know that some are saying, but what good is there in the suffering that I'm going through right now or my loved one is going through right now or my friend is going through right now? What good can come of that? Paul reminds us we need to think, we need to think and go back. Just kind of put yourself at the foot of the cross as Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, and looking up and seeing this man that healed people and raised people from the dead and did all kinds of good, is now dying on the cross, crucified. And you sit there and you have to say, what good could come from that? As you walk away. But we know that the greatest good came from that. What we couldn't see. See, if God is small enough to be understood, he's not big enough to be worshipped. But his ways are much higher than our ways. And his love is much greater than our love. And his suffering is much greater than our suffering. But his love is greater still. And so we can rest. We can sit in the midst of our suffering knowing that God is still our father, that he has not abandoned us, that he is working in the midst of it, and that he has got something much greater planned for all of us. That he is truly the good, good father. I pray you know that more and more every day of your life. In Jesus' name, amen.